welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Today, I sit down with Jessica Scott-Reed. She's an award-winning freelance writer and animal advocate covering animal rights and welfare, plant-based food topics, the environment, and vegan culture for the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, Sentient Media, Planet Friendly News, and others. She's also a co-host of Canada's animal law podcast, Paw and Order. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the Plant-Based Canada podcast. We really appreciate your time. Before we get into what you do as a journalist, I just wanted to understand a little bit more about yourself. Can you give me some background, maybe tell me how you grew up and what got you interested in writing writing in journalism in the first place? Sure, yeah, and thanks so much for having me. I love the work that you guys do. It's really important to pass on the message of plant-based eating, uh, especially in Canada. Yeah, I began writing as a child, uh, you know, creative writing, uh, essay writing, as we, so many of us do in school. I don't think I ever really imagined I'd grow up to be a writer. That was kind of like a like a fantasy job, you know, like you grow up and, you know, to, to be a writer, what does that even mean? It's like to be an artist. It's something you wish. You don't really know a lot of people who do it, but, you know, you're probably not going to end up doing that as a job. So the fact that I'm here now really is a dream come true. Um, not something I expected. I was always interested in media. I actually was like a, a kid's reporter. Uh, I did with something called the MTN Kids Pulse News here for the Manitoba Television Network as a kid. So I did get my, my feet wet, so to speak, in journalism at a young age. And I knew I was always going to be in this field to this extent or to this degree, I don't think, but I always knew I'd be here. Were you ever interested in any other creative writing outlets like for example fiction writing or poetry or anything like that or since you were a kid it was always you were dead set like journalism and reporting actually it was advertising that I was into so I I did do a a bachelor's degree in communications and I really was interested in advertising I love the creative aspect of it and that's what I thought I'd end up doing it's not what I ended up doing at all as soon as I graduated I actually ended up in event planning which is something you can also do with a communications degree corporate event planning, uh, which was pretty, pretty lame. And I'm glad I got out of it. I ended up actually moving to Europe for like a decade uh, and doing a master's degree while I was there in cultural studies. And that sort of brought me back to a more creative place, uh, a more open-minded place, which is what eventually led me to where I am now. What was your entry point to to the animal welfare side of things and the plant-based eating side of things? Because I know you're involved in, in both. Was it I guess when you first came to it, was it was it specifically the animal rights side of things or w- was there also the health element that came in for you? It really was all about the food to begin with. I mean, I have also been an animal lover my whole life. I was, you know, on and off again, vegetarian in my early 20s, as a lot of us kind of were at that time. But like as a kid, I, I you know, wanted to free Willy. I wanted to save the planet. I grew up, I'm an 80s kid, right? I was, I grew up in the late 80s and the early 90s. So you know, the ozone layer and, and littering were big issues back then. But as far as the writing, it, it all came together about food because I was living in Europe, I was studying culture and um, living in Switzerland specifically at the time was really the beginning of the eat local movement and the slow food movement. And I remember sitting at a restaurant on the side of a mountain in Switzerland and being told by the server 
that what I was eating and drinking came literally from places that I could see from this panorama restaurant, you know, that, you know, unfortunately the cheese came from those cows, the beef tartare came from those cows, the wine came from that vineyard. And that's really what got the wheels turning for me, thinking about where my food came from and how intrinsic it was and fundamental to who we are and how we, you know, tread on this planet. Um, and as that kept going, I started writing more about ethical foods, so organic foods. I was very a big proponent of of organic meats and happy meats. I went to such extents to find happy meat wherever I was living. And eventually you realize you can't, and that there's no such thing. And at that exact time, the world was changing too. Plant-based eating started becoming much more popular. So everything really came together at the same time with my writing and with being, you know, this person in this food world and my ethics, I had a daughter who I had to start feeding food to. And it all came to a head um, almost five years ago now where I had to make these choices in both my career and my personal life about how I was going to proceed with food. And I went vegan. And then it's all been, it's all been a, a dream since then, really. There's there the last couple um, interviews I've done with some guests. There is a recurring theme about coming to the realization and changing your diet and your lifestyle and everything. And it's this idea of once you become aware of these things, once you start digging into them, it's impossible for you to not think about where your food comes from or how it's produced at that point. And there's the type of person that becomes slightly aware of it and then ignores it or chooses to ignore it. And then there's the type of person that can't let it go and mm-hmm. has to act on it. And it seems like that once you started going down that, that route, it was, uh, it, you couldn't, you couldn't look back. That's um, exactly right. That's exactly right. So I want to focus. Uh, oh, and I also wanted to mention with the advertising, you mm-hmm. said you were interested in advertising and when you were researching all of these things that got you interested in, you know, farm to table and, uh, and happy meat and humane meat and humane salad mm-hmm. and all this stuff, it must be frustrating to you in the last couple of years to see places like <laughs> as big as franchises, as big as, as big as McDonald's advertise their, or, or um, here in Canada, A&W, the, the grass fed me oh, yeah. and the commercials. I keep every time I listen to a podcast. Now there's a 30 second ad with a little girl who's advertising her, you know, family owned generations owned dairy farm. So I imagine that must uh, <laughs> be frustrating to you. It is. I mean, I studied advertising in school and, you know, dissected campaigns and how they worked. And I was so fascinated at, at, you know, the manipulation of language. And now you're exactly right on this side of it. I'm doing it on the other side now. So I've written a few pieces about grass-fed beef for sentient media, planet-friendly news, dissecting those campaigns and, you know, tearing them apart currently for Corporate Nights magazine. Um, the print edition, I have a story talking about Canada's new sustainable chicken campaign, you know, the family farm bullshit, if I can say that. Um, so I like it this side better. I'm so glad that instead of selling the bullshit, I'm calling it out. And besides getting into the real nitty gritty of, of what's going on uh, at these farms, at these factory farms specifically, you also mm-hmm. focus a lot on the legal side of things how to protect animals from a systemic approach. So I want to get into some of your, some of the stuff you've actually done, your journalistic work. Um, you've been covering animal rights welfare for years as a freelance journalist, you, you know, uh, Toronto Star, you frequent Globe and Mail. Give me a sense of your process as a writer and how you find a story, how you approach it, and 
I guess, how you pitch it to some of these mm-hmm. as a freelance writer to some of these publications? So originally when I started about six or so years ago, I really had to go look, looking for stories. You know, I had my Google alerts and I was seeking any way in that I could talk about animal issues, plant-based food issues, vegan trends and culture. And things have really changed over the last several years that now I'm not seeking stories. Stories are coming to me and just the way that the world is working right now, that it's nonstop. There's more than I can even handle. Um, I'm, I'm trying to train other people to do what I do because there, there needs to be more of us doing this work to be talking about these issues. So originally I would, you know, be pitching these ideas and getting rejected a lot, which is a very common part of the process, going to these editors of different magazines and newspapers. And sometimes they'd say yes, sometimes they'd say no. I had a really wonderful editor at the Globe and Mail. Her name was Amberly. Uh, she just left, unfortunately. And she took a chance on me and gave me a, a few ends to talk about these issues for the first time, I think, in in a lot of ways in Canadian media, and it really got the ball rolling. So now when I'm pitching, I definitely still get rejected. um, But they're a little bit more open to the issues. I think now I've, you know, proven myself more as a writer. And the issues have proven themselves to be important to readers. I think the last story that I just did for the Toronto Star, you know, proclaiming that the end of milk was near might have been my most read article I've ever written. It's obvious that People care about these topics, and I'm just glad that they continue to let me write them. So I pitch them. If I get the go-ahead, sometimes the turnaround is really quick. Depends on how timely the issue is, and depends on the publication. Some want them, like, in two hours, which I never am able to do. I try to get at least till the end of the day. But a lot of these issues are things that are already in my head, so sometimes they don't need a lot of um, research. So things I've already written about, already talked about. Some things are much longer form. I'm also finishing an article right now for Vox Media that I've been working on since July. So (laughs) a lot of these things are, the process is different every time, depending on the subject matter, depending on the publication and the timeliness of the issue. What people need to know about opinion writing specifically, like I do for the Star and the Globe and Mail, is that it's not just me going on a rant. There is research involved. Though it is an opinion, there has to be statistics and facts to back them up. I can't be, you know, super exaggerated or emotive with my language it still has to be factual I, my theme is always clever not crazy and I think that's why they keep letting me get in there well yeah and you bring up a good point at the top there where you said you know these issues especially with things like climate change and uh the pandemic um yeah. these issues of animal rights and how animals how we treat animals in particular it's 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 huge now and more people despite the numbers still being very low more people are thinking about this and adopting this diet. So it's becoming more, I guess, in a way profitable to some people to, yeah, to, yeah, to take that, up that this cause. Um, you see things like beyond meat that are like, you know, um, huge athletes are sponsoring them. So it is becoming more, more widespread. However, I would say that there's still a lot of pushback. Um, oh, yeah. There's a lot of, I mean, it's, it's one thing for somebody to say that they're an animal lover, but then if somebody, you know, if you start presenting data to them about what happens to animals in factory farms or how they're treated or how unhealthy some of these animal based diets can be, then there's always an emotional reaction. Do you find when you're pitching these things, or maybe even once you've got these, these articles you've written out into the world that you get a lot of, you know, critics? Uh, yeah, to say the least. Um, Definitely. Um, I think the editors that I work with, even if they might not agree with what I'm writing, that's kind of the name of the game, right? Like the opinion section is there to ruffle feathers. So 
they're open mostly as long as I can make, you know, a sound argument and they're on board with it. And as long as, you know, there's room in the paper that day, uh, that's sometimes all it comes down to. But after I put things out, oh yeah, uh, especially for some reason when I'm specifically dealing with the dairy industry, um, like this last one, there's a lot of hate, you know, there are people too, I get it. They're just trying to, you know, make a living. Uh, and it, like I often say, it's not personal against farmers. The system is broken. And, you know, a lot of us advocates, we want to advocate for them being okay too. Like the um, idea of transitioning these businesses to, to plant-based crops and foods, you know, in Canada, our pulse um, industry is booming. Like there's, there's options and it's not about trying to take down other people and other, you know, people trying to make a living. It's about helping all of us. And uh, I can understand why some people would come at me because they think I'm trying to take, you know, food off their, their family's table. And that's not the case. So I want to I want to go more into the to the legal side of things, which you focus on a lot, too. So I mentioned earlier, you know, you, you, you look at how to protect animals from a more systemic approach. But also, as you just in your last answer, you, you said that your approach is clever, not crazy, right? You, you make so. sure that everything's backed up by, by, by data and you present this information to people and whether they like it or not, it's, it's, that's the fact. So exactly. I guess in a way going about it that way is more of a systemic approach. You're just taking the data that already exists and then you're presenting it in a way and giving a new lens into that, into that, uh, that whole thing. So can you explain in terms of, of, of the, the stuff you focus on um, legally, mm-hmm why you think this route is more effective. And for those who might not be familiar, can you highlight how certain laws and policies can actually, you know, be detrimental to animals here in Canada? Yeah. Like I often say, the truth speaks for itself. It's just that most people don't know the truth. I don't have to make things up. I don't have to, you know, be super over the top about what I'm saying. Like I I often reference the NFAC codes, the National Farm Animal Care Council, which is the code of practice that animal farmers have as their guiding light. There are no laws governing the everyday treatment of animals on farms in Canada. And that's a fact that most people don't realize. There's laws that govern slaughter. There's laws that govern transport, but not the treatment of animals on farms. So they have these NFAC codes, which they've created themselves and they uphold themselves and are essentially voluntary. So being able to illuminate that fact in mainstream media is in itself a a big moment that I I, I try to do as often as I can. And then get diving into those NFAC codes. A lot of people don't know that you know, on-farm euthanasia methods include, you know, what they call piglet thumping, grabbing baby pigs by their back legs and slamming their heads into concrete till they die. That's an acceptable and standard practice. Or throwing live baby chicks into macerators and grinding them up alive. That is absolute standard practice. Uh, And so I, I can just allow those facts to speak for themselves. Another issue that I cover a lot on the legal side is egg gag legislation. And so egg gag laws... Uh, We have them now in Manitoba, Ontario, and Alberta. There is some form of it as well in PEI. And essentially, to different degrees, um, each each jurisdiction does it a little bit different. But essentially, they're meant to deter activists, undercover investigators, whistleblowers from exposing these exact truths. Um, It was brought on by an increase of activism on farms activists peacefully entering farm spaces and an increase in undercover and whistleblower investigations making into mainstream media. So the farming industry, the animal agriculture industry will tell you that it's to protect 
the animals, which is hilarious. But in fact, they are, it is to protect the industry because what the more we expose what's actually happening in there, especially not even just egregious cases of cruelty, but just standard practices, the more the public is going to start questioning their own consumer choices. And so they have to protect the industry and that's what they're there for. Uh, to deter activists with massive fines, even jail time for things as simple as trespassing or standing outside of trucks. It's it's really making things difficult, but so far not deterring completely. They're, they're still doing it. They're, the activists are still doing what they're doing. So you mentioned terms like, you know, standard of practice, mode of operation. Uh, I guess the way that they, you illustrated it just now, but the way that they see these animals aren't as animals, they're as products. And that's the way that the law functions around them is that they're not, I mean, we're talking about Canada, but that's, I mean, it's all over the world, really. Like, I guess America really kind of spearheaded things with the ag-ag laws, but they're just, they're not living things to the law. They're just this farmer's or whoever's product. Um, Yeah, legal property. Yeah, legal property, and they have That's to protect right. that. I also want to mention. So you you mentioned obviously like some of these these horrible things that happened to some of the animals, but I also want to mention like these are these are directly happening to the animals. But yep. then you have things too like these side effects um, and runoffs from factory farms. You've got the polluted waterways and things like that, the the environmental hazards, but also that we're seeing right right now. There was the the, the flooding in BC that's happening yep. right now. Thousands of animals are now dead because they were in factory farms or on farms in these low laying valleys where people had to evacuate. They couldn't get the animals out. So they became, and I guess you trace it all the way back. And the part of the reason why we have these extreme weather events is because of in part animal agriculture. It's been a very rough couple of days. And in fact, dealing with that, um, I'm trying to get something out right now into mainstream media. A lot of people don't want to talk about the animal issue. They want to talk about the the heroic farmers rescuing the animals, which blows my mind that we're talking about farmers saving animals. Um, When of course they're really saving their profit. What you don't see is a lot of, or so far any photos of any chickens being saved. So far, all I see is cows being saved and they may in fact be pregnant cows which makes much more sense because those are going to be far more profitable animals chickens are very easily replaced in the minds of these people yeah they're they're prioritizing them based on their 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 profitability profitability. yep yep you also mentioned the agag laws um you went into that and explained that to everybody so now we know what that is i want to ask you know you, you mentioned that it makes it illegal for these mm-hmm. journalists and people that are that are that want to ex- go into these farms and see what practices are happening, have you or do you know anyone who's been a part of some of these operations where where some people have to do it undercover or pose as, as something else and go into mm-hmm. these farms? And I know it can be dangerous for people in your line of work. Have you had any situation like that, or have you experienced anything like that, or have colleagues who have? Yeah, I I haven't personally because at this point the industry knows who I am. There's no way that I'm going to be able to go undercover, but I rely on those who do go undercover and um, animal justice recently released uh, footage from a, of a dairy farm in BC an organic dairy farm in BC where um, somebody had placed a camera inside for a number of months and captured really horrific treatment of the animals there. They also released footage from a pig farm right before the law took uh, hold in Ontario where they had somebody go in undercover uh, and record horrific treatment of pigs there. And um, I think at, at this point, 
to, to put somebody into that position, it, there'd be ethical dilemmas because you know that now it's completely illegal. I know that there have been activists who are still entering farm of their own fruition. There was a, an activism, where was it recently? In Ontario, I believe, where they tried to, the police found out uh, and ended up putting, you know, a big blockade so that the, the activists couldn't get there. Um, so they were still willing to do it. But so much of my work has in the last few years depended on these investigations and these activists and these whistleblowers, they, they get the footage, they get the proof, and then I take it to the media. That's how this works. And so I'm actually part of a lawsuit in Ontario against the Ontario government, along with Animal Justice and um, a photographer and activist, Louise Jorgensen. We're suing the Ontario government, stating that this law conflicts with our charter rights to freedom of expression. Uh, and it definitely interferes with my freedom of the press. Like, I think I, I wrote one for the Toronto Star. It was my 24th opinion article this summer stating that the, not the majority, but a, a large amount of the, the things that I've done in the past is based on, on that exact process that is now being deemed illegal. You, you also just now mentioned um, the work that you've done with uh, Animal Justice, the Animal Justice Academy. Uh, for, for our viewers who might not be familiar, can you, can you tell us a little more about what, what that academy is and then maybe give us a taste of, of what the curriculum is like there? Sure. So Animal Justice Academy is a new program um, that was created by Animal Justice. So Animal Justice is the Canada's only animal law firm, so to speak. They represent animals. And, and in this past year, they created the Animal Justice Academy, which is a free sort of school for activists and anybody who wants to learn different forms of getting involved in advocating for animals. There's all different kinds of modules from incredible activists and academics and experts in the world of animal advocacy from all over the world. And I think there's at this point, I think thousands of participants because it's all online and you can now access it at whenever you want. So I have a module about how to write letters to the editor and how to write opinion pieces to advocate for animals in the media. So that's just one small portion. There's ones about social media. There's ones about civil disobedience. So it's a really incredible tool that has so far led to such incredible action for animals. I know just on the front of um, letter writing, there have been so many incredible letters to the editor published across media in Canada and perhaps the U.S. based on people who have attended Animal Justice Academy and have learned how to do so. And now we flag articles that require this action in response. And it's really been something very cool to see. For anybody looking for ways to, to join this advocacy, we'll make sure that we link the yeah. Animal Justice Academy so that people can get involved if they, if they want to. I want to switch gears here and talk about uh, something that dominated the headlines the last two weeks. It was uh, the COP26 mm -hmm. uh, UN Climate Change Summit. Over the course of those weeks, we saw a lot of different headlines, you know, the U.S. and China, big things like the U.S. and China agreeing to work together. Um, leaders from more than 100 countries were agreed to end deforestation. There was the whole bit about um, phasing phasing out coal. At first, it was going to be there was phasing talk out to phasing down, phasing down, right? And then they, at the last minute, I think on the last day or the day before, they kind of revamped some of the language. And I know that there were a lot of clauses in some of the some of the uh, uh, communique that kind of put uh, economic interests uh, ahead of of just the fact that climate change is here and we need to fight it. There were these little bits that were mm -hmm. added in about how we can create business. And I understand if you're creating an incentive, more people in more countries might be involved, but again, it's still, we're past the point of the critical point of, of no return. 
I want to know, you know, as a journalist, you were following it. Do you think that it was really like at the last minute, just they poured water and everything and watered everything down? Or do you think that there were any legitimate examples of progress? I think generally it was a huge disappointment. I think that a lot of good conversations were had. I think in the end, you know, watching, you know, places like the Marshall Islands intervene and and speak about things that really should be talked about by giant countries. To me, that was more of a symbolic action. I think things that were put down in paper in the end really were very disappointing. The deforestation conversations were very important. The methane conversations were important, but obviously lacking. I think the biggest takeaway was the call to have everybody come back again next year and do more. I think that really was was the most important part because as you and I probably both know, so much of the conversation was missing around animal agriculture. Like how are we even talking about methane and not talking about animal agriculture? You know, like the, the big saying was the, you know, the elephant in the room is a cow. We hear this so often. And that, you know, animal agriculture was taken off the agenda and put on the menu and seeing the, the foods that were being served there and that they were actually, I saw these, these posters from the conference of the, of the carbon footprint associated with each meal so that each person could choose whether they were going to have this high carbon footprint haggis or the low carbon footprint lentils. And you're like, why are you even being given this choice? Walk the walk, for God's sakes. It was, um, yeah, if you can't tell, I think overall it was a, it was a huge disappointment. Yeah, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, the last couple of years, the Academy Awards, had, they, they went vegan. And if the Academy Awards could do it, exactly. uh, but yet the people it, at COP exactly. can't. It, you, you said um, the word symbolic. I feel like that, to me, yes. that's what it all felt like, that it was symbolic. Because, you know, they've been meeting for years and years and each year it's another critical point and we never seem to to make any progress. And then there's also the stuff on deforestation. Like, again, these people are, these countries are, these leaders are signing up for things that are, that are symbolic because all these countries sign their name to end deforestation, I think by 2030, which is not, not too oh far in the future. And yet one of the, one of the, the countries that signed up to end deforestation was Brazil. Right. And yet, and yet we're not talking about, okay, so, so, but we're going to stop, we're going to stop, you know, blazing down the rainforest to be able to farm cows and grow their food though. Right. Like we're going to talk about that next though. Right. No, no. On the animal agriculture side of things, anywhere if there's, there's estimates, the FAO anywhere from 18 to 30% of our total climate emissions. So I, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, I am curious in terms of what you think, is it, is it simply, because there's financial incentive there, there's lobbyists that are, you know, you mentioned the dairy industry and how powerful they are earlier. Does it, is that what it all comes down to? Um, I think why, that's what, a, huge, a huge part of it. Why, the, why these things aren't on the table at these types of conferences and why these conversations aren't happening amongst leaders. I think leaders like the taste of meat. I think scientists like the taste of meat. And I think that governments are so heavily invested in animal agriculture as an industry that to divest from it now would put them in huge peril. Like I work often with a group called nation rising here in Canada that specifically lobbies for subsidies that go to animal agriculture to be redirected to, you know, plant-based protein production, plant-based food production. And we have seen a little bit of that here in Canada in the last while, but it's nothing compared to the billions that are being funneled into animal agriculture. And, to, to bring back the issue of the BC floods, 
that's sort of the angle I'm working on right now is to say, what, what's going to happen after this? Are we going to give these farmers more money, more public funds to restart this cycle all over again? Or can we change things? Should we be doing something a little bit different so that we don't end up in this exact same place again? But people don't want to make that connection. The fact that animal farming is such a massive contributor to climate chaos, people like to taste the meat. I think that's a really that's a really poignant point to make is that people like simply that's you know that's there's it. um a lot of the guests we've had on the show they've been health professionals and they present to us all of this data that suggests that you do not need meat to live a healthy lifestyle to live a healthy life and that there's all of these ways that you can season vegetables to get you know the the, the flavors that you desire if you desire these 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 meat products and also there's the analogs I kind of, I want to talk about that because that's, I mean, that's such a, if we're at this point where there's massive flooding, there's massive extreme weather events every other day, it seems like around the world. And it all really comes down to, well, we've got the data to show that we don't actually need meat, but we're going to do it because we like the taste of it. I mean, that seems like a pretty flimsy way to operate. Um, Yeah. I want to kind of move that. So yeah, like, you know, you bring up the lobbyists and everything. Let's kind of move the conversation to the general public, like mm-hmm. to go back to the very beginning, you know, once somebody can, becomes aware, uh, it, people can choose not to simply because they like the taste of something or, you know, the, the whole excuse of we've always done it that way, yeah. um, which is also infuriating. Let's talk about the general public. We like, uh, we've seen a, a massive interest in plant-based diets over the last couple of years, like we mentioned, um, the athletes promoting, uh, beyond meat and things like that. You've got the impossible burger and stuff. Uh, so it's becoming more accessible to people. Yeah. Um, you got your non-dairy it's everywhere cheeses. Uh, these products are kind of sold all over now in Canada. You can get them at most grocery stores as somebody covering this field for a long time. What's it been like to kind of follow this evolution? What are some of the highlights that you've seen? And do you think that it's actually progress or do you think that we don't have enough people, despite it being, you know, mm. mainstream now that we don't have enough people on board to, to, to make a difference before, before it's truly, truly too late. Yeah, that's a good question. It's always that idea of, are we just selling more plant-based alternatives and more meat, or are we selling it in place of meat? And the statistics aren't great, unfortunately, but from my perspective, you know, come some someone coming from a cultural studies background, I think the culture has to shift first, uh, and the market just has to be there for them. On the other hand, I don't think it's going to be a cultural shift that gets us there. I think what we're seeing right now with the inflation of meat and dairy prices, I think that's going to be it. And I remember it used to be we used to talk about a tax on animal products that that was going to be what it was. I think in Denmark they have. Uh, put in place such a thing. If people really knew how expensive these foods actually were without the massive government subsidies, and I think eventually we're going to get to a point where I think somebody said to me today to buy two T-bone steaks costs almost $50. And yet you're going to have, you know, a plant-based burger down the way. I think it's going to be cost because that's just how humans operate. And people are starting to incorporate more plant-based foods just on the fact that it's cheaper. And then they're learning, oh, wait, it's also improving my health. And so that's a double-edged sword. But both of those two things are selfish, right? Both of those two things are self-serving. But if that's what works, that's what works. It's going to make you feel better. It's going to cut your budget. So let's go with that. And then 
once you start, because we're all self-interested, we start researching, oh, look at the benefits of lentils. I'm going to Google more about lentils. You're going to get down that path where eventually you're going to land on animal agriculture and you're going to start learning the things because that's how it all worked for all of us who any of us who didn't come in from an ethical standpoint, who came in from a food culture, you know, health interest point, you get to that, that footage of the slaughterhouse eventually. And that's my prediction of how it's going to go. <laughs> One way or the other, I hope that, that eventually we get to that point, but you're right. I mean, it, it seems like people aren't going to make that change unless it's a necessity. You bring up the really timely aspect of inflation. We just saw this last week, how, mm -hmm. and, and it's impacting, I mean, yeah, sure. Produce is impacted a little bit, but it's really hitting the dairy and the meat industries. Like oh, you, yeah. those things are skyrocketing. And it seems like it's, I mean, the, the predictions are only that it's going to get uh, more expensive and more expensive. So it, yeah, like you said, it's, it's selfish, it seems, but whatever uh, works, <laughs> whatever, what, whatever works. I just uh, hope that more people actually took the time to go down the route that you just mentioned there, where you actually start looking into where your food yeah. comes from and what you're yeah. eating and the health benefits of them before you just base everything off of what you personally like the taste of. What about, I guess, to, to try to lighten the mood a little bit, um, <laughs> what, are, what are some of the, I guess, the, the future trends that you see in the, it, it, I guess we can talk about either the plant-based products or plant-based movement or the vegan movement, or, you know, in terms of what we might see in the future for animal wel welfare, mm -hmm. um, now that these things, again, are becoming more mainstream and, and, and spotlighted. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what, I don't see a lot changing for animal welfare. If anything, I see things getting kind of worse when we see the, you know, the introduction of these egg egg laws, it's really just pushing animal welfare further back into the dark. We made some progress because of social media, because everyone has a smartphone, because of groups like the Save Movement who are there outside of those trucks. Um, in the last decade, things have been exposed more than ever before. But now with these laws being put in place, you're going to see a little bit less of that. I think on the other side, um, the evolution of plant-based foods, they're just going to get better and better. There's so many brands now I can't even keep up. People send me free food all the time and I can't even keep track of you know, which ones are good, which ones are bad, <laughs> because not all are created equal. Still, we have this point where, you know, some are, are still not doing well. I think that there's a lot to talk about in the cell-based meat space. I don't know where I stand personally on it, but I think that it could be a huge factor uh, going forward for um, environmentalism and animal welfare. And also something I'm working on right now, which is interesting, is in the companion animal world, the plant-based and cell-based foods for pets starting to really take off because what I'm learning is, is that they, what was the stat in 2017? So you could assume it's probably even way worse now. They said if all of the cats and dogs in the U S were on in their own country, they would be the fifth highest meat consumers in the world, right? Like the carbon footprint of having dogs and cats as pets is so massive. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of movement in that space and how to cut your carbon paw print because people aren't are just starting to realize now animals eat a lot of meat and they create a lot of waste and if we're here you know as uh, plant-based food advocates and environment environmentalists we have to think about that part too yeah that's a really good that's a really good point people don't think about that there's all of these you know sidebar topics and angles that people Tons. don't really 
consider. And pet food is huge. There's so much that goes into the production of that. And again, most of it for cats and dogs specifically, it's, it's meat-based. Oh, yeah. So that's a, that's a huge factor that people don't even think about. Before I let you go, I just wanted to uh, get your, uh, ask you one more question for, for people listening and inspired by some of what we've talked about today. And they want to be a part of some of this advocacy. What's your advice to them if they've never done it before and they really want to get out mm. there and get involved? Um, I probably have three things to suggest. First and foremost, use whatever talents you have and whatever community you're already in. It's, it's sometimes we, we sometimes end up in an echo chamber. If we always go out and seek, you know, other vegans and animal activists, start doing it around your own kitchen table, start talking to people in your own workplace, try and implement, you know, new policies where, where you're at, you know, if you're a lawyer or a barista or something, try and make changes where you are, because we need more people out in the normal world, making changes for animals than we do even in the animal advocacy world. But a good place to start getting those kinds of ideas and to, and to have that community would be to, to connect with your local grassroots groups. So the Save Movement, for example, has chapters all over the world um, in lots of communities or just your local vegan community. Even if there's no activist community, just start finding some like-minded people, you know, have a better way of throwing around ideas of how to be active in your own small community. We need less globalized animal actions and more local ones, in my opinion. So start where you're at. And my personal one that I always like to tell people is again, use the media. If you have an idea after you read an article in a, in a publication or online, and you want to go to that Facebook comment section and leave a little rant to defend animals or to promote plant-based eating. Don't put it there. <laughs> I mean, put it there, but also email it to the letters to the editor section of the publication that you're responding to. Even if they don't get published, just having this communication make it to that editor's desk on a regular basis. If you see something I write and you think it's great, let them know if you see an article about, you know, animals being exploited where the animal isn't really taken into consideration, remind them that this is a living being that needs to have somebody advocating for them. So use the media, use letters to the editor. They're so simple to write. And it really just keeps conversations about animals and plant-based eating going further than, than that one story. This has been a really interesting conversation. I've really, you know, learned a lot and you're the okay. first person that we've had on, on this podcast that has really been able to delve into the real specific things like ag-ag laws and the animal advocacy side of things. So it's an extremely important perspective that I'm happy that we got to highlight with you. And it's also part and parcel of the, of the wider picture. You know, all of these things come hand in hand, whether it's animal agriculture, animal welfare, uh, animal-based diet, and its effect on your health and mm -hmm. the effect on the planet, as we, as we mentioned. So thank you mm -hmm. so much for joining us. And I hope we get to talk to you again down the road. I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org, and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.